Good morning. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Today's sermon comes from Psalm chapter 22. And as we have said and will continue to say so that we don't forget, so we truly remember, the Psalms are the corporate prayers of God's people, the words of God to the people of God for us to give back to God. So would you please read Psalm chapter 20 verses 1 through 9 with me out loud. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Let's pray. Father, we pray the words of our King because of our King and to our King. We ask that you hear us now even as we know you do hear us because you love us. Father, we're trying to trust that you will always honor the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Please help us believe when the battle of unbelief in our hearts this day And as we face the various and diverse battles of this life, don't let us march out toward them, counting on horses and chariots, money or power or anything else. Teach us to trust in the name of the Lord our God. So trusting in your name, we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. So how many of you are showing up today feeling like you're in a battle of some sort right now. Chances are, if you're like, no, no battle here, you're either trying to keep a stiff upper lip and you're kind of lying, or uh, you're just lying. Everyone is facing some sort of uphill battle, some sort of season or instance or circumstance of want or need. Maybe you're fighting for your family. Maybe you're fighting for your kids, your, your marriage. Maybe life in your job or your business or your career, your, your school, it just feels like a war zone of, of work or politics or relationships. Uh, perhaps your sleep or your, your mental or emotional health, your physical health, you're in the midst of a daily battle just to feel like you're making it through. Or each of us know the experience of being overwhelmed with anxiousness or depression or fear and and teetering on sort of this cliff's edge of some vague notion of tapping out and giving up, whatever that means. You might not even know what just giving up means, but you feel like you're about to potentially. Regardless, there's something that you really, really, really want. There's something that perhaps you really, really, really need, and it feels like a battle in the wanting. It feels like a war in the needing. If you're a Christian, you need to know that you weren't simply born into a world. You were born into a war. You were born into a war. 
a real, true spiritual war that often seems to be simply an invisible, metaphorical, metaphysical, sort of ideological war. But that war is being fought demonstrably, manifestly, in your life, in your body, in your soul, in your relationships. God's word tells us how we ought to approach this. In the New Testament, there's a, a letter called 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, the apostle Peter says, Beloved, and when he says beloved, he's talking to the church. That's God's nickname for the church. The church is the beloved. So he's talking to us, to you. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. For Christians, we ought not to be surprised when things are difficult, when trauma and trial seems out of nowhere to possibly jump up on us, or yet more feels like it's being piled on us. I'm not saying we shouldn't call it, like, I'm not saying we should call it good. And be like, all right, more trouble. But we shouldn't be surprised as though, like, I'm undeserving of this. This is a su su surprise. What did I do to, to deserve this? I'm, 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 I deserve better than this. He says, don't be surprised as, something, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings because Jesus was not surprised. He, in his earthly life, he was born as Jesus, the baby of Nazareth. He, he wasn't simply born into this world. He was born into a war, and he knew it. And he suffered in his life in this war to win it. And if you are a Christian and you are with Jesus and you are saved and you belong to him, then in this war, you share in those same sufferings. And what do we do? How do we view Jesus because of his sufferings for us? We honor him. He's honorable. He's honored. He's praised because of suffering sacrificially for the love of his people. So if you suffer for being a Christian, you share a seat in the honor, in the dignity that Jesus has now shared with you. And all of this so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed because the Bible also tells us in Romans chapter 8 that when his glory is revealed, so will, so will your glory be revealed. The glory he bestows upon all those who belong to him, all those who suffered for him, with him, alongside of him. So if it's true that we're all in some sort of war, some sort of ongoing spiritual battle. How do we do our fighting? How do we do our fighting? What are, what are our weapons? And, and like, what does victory even look like? Because we want victory. Which brings me to the big idea of today's passage, Psalm chapter 20, is that winning your battles comes from who you have and not what you have. Any and all victory, any and all win, any and all blessing, any and all forward progress or redemption or restoration or reconciliation doesn't fully and finally and decisively depend on what you have, though you may need some things. But those things do not determine the outcome and the definitive victory. It's who you have. Who do you have? In the time of Psalm chapter 20, when it was written, uh, this would have been a prayer that the Israelites, God's people, 
were, would pray on behalf of their king, David, just before the nation faced uh, a battle or, or war. So as, as David and his army uh, prepared and then would depart from Jerusalem, the people would gather and they would worship God together in public. And this psalm would have been their prayer, that they would have sung together as a nation, and not simply a nation like America is a nation or Canada is a nation. This, wasn't an, this was not an identity of nationality. This was a theological, religious identity. They would, they would have sung this not simply as Israelites, but as God's people, the people who belong to God. And they would sing it on behalf of their king and their army. And then it, it also essentially was a prayer that they would sing to God for themselves, since their king was fighting for the salvation of the people. The king loses, well, the people lose. And so in David's time, Israel, you need to know, in David's time, Israel had never been wealthier and they had never been mightier. In fact, if you read the Bible, uh, you'll find that after David's time, uh, Israel grew in wealth under the time of Solomon, but they were never as mighty. They were never as powerful. This was the pinnacle of God's people on earth at this time. No one fought or won battles like the Israelites. So listen, here's the, here's the big thing is, as the people were praying this, David and the army would be dressed in the best of armor, sharpening the best of swords, uh, loading up into the best chariots that were going to be driven by the best horses. Israel had, for warfare, the best of the best in that world. And with all of that said, David and the army, weren't, they weren't going to leave. They weren't allowed to leave the city and depart for battle until God's people had prayed and worshiped God. They weren't going to leave with the best armor, best swords, best arrows, best chariots, best horses, best generals. They weren't going to leave for battle until they collected themselves with God. They weren't counting simply or merely on what they had, what God supplied, but they were, they were counting on the one who supplied it. It's the Lord we need to win our battles. It's God. And, and this can kind of become a, a bit of a, a, a religious kind of thing, this feeling. Uh, I'm trusting God to to win my battles, to, to, to do the heavy lifting. Um, and, and then it can, it can, for some people, seem to be taken, like we interpret that as, so I guess I shouldn't do anything. I shouldn't try to do anything. I'm going to be still and know that he is God. To say that it's the Lord we need to win our battles isn't to say that God's, don't, God's people don't fight the battle. Because David and the army, under God's command, are going out to fight a battle. They're going to fight. It doesn't mean that trusting in God means sitting around doing nothing, taking no steps, lifting no shovel, lifting no sword, lifting no hand, lifting no voice. Trusting God means obeying God, which may mean you, you need to obey him and step up, do work, do whatever fighting, whatever working, whatever researching, whatever knocking and asking, whatever pleading, network, reach out, research, learn, take some steps. Yeah, it may mean, it definitely means obeying God, but victory in any and every struggle of our life depends finally and decisively 
on God? And do you have him? Regardless of what you do have or don't have, do you have him? So let's take a look at verse 1 through 5. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. Zion is the ancient name for God's city, Jerusalem. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. And that's why I threw you a head fake when we read it together because that word Selah means stop. Think about our God. Think about what we just said to him. Think about who he is. Don't talk too fast. Don't say too much. Wait. So may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. And may we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of God, let us set up our banners. Let's, let's put our flags on our cars and drive through town honking. Let's set up our banners and flags and make it public that it's our God who wins the day and it's our God who loves us. It, it, I just I'm going to pause here and this is probably what is going to make me go a little longer in my sermon today than I even planned to. Sorry, but now I'm, I'm just letting us know, all right? Now we can mark it in the time. There's a tendency for us as Christians to want to uh, adapt ourselves to some, I think, value in our culture that you're allowed to be Christian and you're even allowed to be Christian publicly and talk about the goodness of God. You just got to do it real subtle. You got to do it real subtle and not offensively. You can't be braggy or boasty. It's best to kind of keep it kind of private and just kind of hint at it a little bit because we we don't want to make trouble for for people who don't believe in God. And our God... Our God does so many mysterious, invisible things behind the scenes. There's there's no way for us to count. But this book, our book, God's book to us, is full of stuff that he does in public. He makes it public. He does it in front of people. Jesus Christ was crucified in public, and he resurrected, and he was seen in public for 40 days by hundreds and hundreds of people. And his people in the early church went out in public, and it was apparent and known And not braggy and boastful and swaggering in and of themselves, but bragging and boasting in the name of our God. So we've set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. They're praying. I want to share with you both ways kind of this is being written, kind of both angles. See, see there's a a temporal in-history writing of this psalm. Uh, we're, not clear, we're not clear on whether David wrote this first part and gave it to the people, said, hey, here's how you can pray for us and the army. Or if the people were already praying like this and David was like, wow, I love God's people. I'm so, I'm so thankful to get to be your king. And he wrote it down and it was instituted as like, like organized. This is, this is our prayer. But either way, the people are praying for God's favor on the king, for his salvation, for his victory. Verses 1 through 5 are the people as they pray for their king. And then verses 6 through 9 is David's prayer response, following the prayer of the people on his behalf. Now, that's in history, really temporal, actual. that's, That's the circumstance in real life of how this psalm came to be. But there's a truer and greater and longer lasting sense of 
why this psalm comes to be. Because we, one of our guiding principles is each and every one of these psalms, these words, all of them, all 150 of the psalms, those words all belong to Jesus first before they could ever belong to us. They all belong to Jesus before they can belong to us. And so if you are a Christian, if you believe the gospel, if you have God, if you belong to him, then now these are actually the words of the king, Jesus, praying on your behalf, praying on your behalf. Both of these are accurate. Both of these are applicable. But for us, the, dest the destiny of our king is secure. The destiny of David, the people didn't know. But for us Christians, we know the destiny of our king. We know that's secure. We don't have to pray and ask God to bless and give victory to our king. We don't have to. We get to. We should. But we already know the outcome of that. And so our request for God to make Jesus great and give him victory, that's a prayer of petition and pre-celebration because we believe his victory is full. And if, even if it's not at the moment fulfilled, it's, it's as good as fulfilled. It's a guarantee. So now we pray not only simply on behalf of our king, now we pray to our king because our king is God. He's the only one who can answer these petitions. He's the only one who can do these things. Because of the gospel of Jesus now in verses 1 through 5, now these are now Christ's prayer and blessing on himself and his people, his church. And now verses 6 through 9, they are our prayer as we trust in the faithful love and goodness of our God, who's our king. We can know that Jesus' prayer is heard and honored by God, and we can pray verses 6 through 9 because Jesus prayed verses 1 through 5 for us, and he's fulfilled all those things. We can pray these things because like, they get to be our words because they're Jesus' words first, and he's shared them with us. He's, he's included us. So just briefly, I want you to think of, I want, I want you to see what these verses 1 through 5, what these, what these requests consist of. It, here, these are prayers asking that God will answer you when you pray, that God will protect you, that he'll help you, that he'll support you, that he'll remember you, and in the, in the opposite direction, that he'll never forget you, that he'll grant your desire that he'll fulfill your plans, that he'll grant you salvation, a greater salvation simply and merely than winning an earthly victory in a war or battle or winning a debate or argument or winning uh, an achievement or an award here or, or uh, I don't know, uh, 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 what's it called? Uh, promotion, yeah, that's, that's what you get when you do good at your job and they, they give you more money or probably more responsibility and a little bit of money, right? That, Greater than anything that you could win, the greater win and victory is salvation, that you would be granted salvation, not only from your earthly enemies, but salvation from yourself, salvation from God. That you would be saved from the judgment and condemnation, from the anger of God that you deserve. And that you'd be saved from God, by God, for God. And finally, this prayer asks that God will respond to your petitions. He'll respond. He'll do something. <clears throat> See, it's our belief that God can and will do these things. That that's a secure belief. 
It's secure. It's reliable. We can count on it. We can live that way. And in a way that we say, I'm taking a risk for the Christian, we say, yeah, I'm taking a risk. I'm stepping out in faith. I'm living in a way as though I can trust God. He'll be faithful. That he loves me. He knows what's best for me. He won't do me any injustice. Whether this works out really well for me and I get what I want or even need or not, I know who I have and he's good and he'll never do me wrong. And we know that not simply does God give or supply money, opportunities, material possessions, a job. He, he does give those things. And you know what? We may actually need those things. Not just merely want. We, we may need those things. You want to keep living? You're going to need some food and some water. You want to, you want to keep living? You, you're, you're probably going to need air and your heart to keep beating and your brain waves to still function properly. Yeah, you definitely need those things. But whatever we need, God is faithful to give. He's faithful to serve us. But again, each and every one of those victories, the supplying and protection and provision that we need, it depends on the fact that, man, Jesus is praying for you. God is constantly, Romans 8 says, God, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and he's constantly talking to the Father about how much he loves you, talking and enjoying with his dad, how much he and his dad both love you. And they're literally giddily rubbing their hands together constantly over the destiny and the path of life into eternity that they've planned and they're executing for you. Even in, and especially in the darkest, the most painful trials. Because they're not, they're not giddy over what they're permitting you to go through that, that hurts you, but they're going, oh, I can't wait until we show her what we're doing with this. I can't wait until we spring it on her, what we were accomplishing. <clears throat> this no we're telling her. This not yet. And it's going to be a long time that we're, that we're having to show her, oh, Father, I can't wait until we show her just how sweet we're going to turn this bitterness it's going to be great. We can believe in God and our victory because Jesus is praying for us. And because Jesus has won and secured all of our victories with his life, with his death, and proving it by his resurrection. He's alive. It's because Jesus is our God. And he loves us. He loves us. He cares. It, we matter to him. So winning our battle, our victories, they, they come from who we have and not simply what we have. I want to look at verse 6. See, in verse 6, here's where I want to take you. It, this idea, it's, it's, the, it's the Lord's character to answer the prayer of his people. That's why, that's why you can pray to him and trust that any and every victory that you need or in want, we can trust in him for it. Because it's in his character. It's in my character, it's in my person to talk and teach. To either teach and explain or to tell stories or to try to make people laugh or I, I love to inspire people. Uh, that's like, that's my jam. That, like, that's in me. Like, I don't have to pencil it in. And if any of you have ever spent any time with me, 
I can't help it. It happens. I'm not, I don't decide. All of a sudden, I'm preaching or I'm teaching or I'm trying to tell a story or encourage. Why? Because it's just, just my character. It's in God's character. If he wanted to, he couldn't because, well, that's who he is. That's who he's decided that he is. He's the kind of person who loves his people and he answers their prayers. Verse 6, here's David and now here's us. Assuring ourselves of what we believe of who because of who our God is and what his character is like. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He'll answer him. He'll answer his anointed. God will answer David. He'll answer me. He'll answer you if you're a Christian. He'll answer you from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. In the ancient world, they weren't so diverse and sensitive about you know, left-handed people or neurodivergent people. So back then, it was like, right hand, that's your strong hand. What about me? I'm left-handed. Didn't your mom and dad spank your hand every time you used it? Come on, normal people use their right hand. That's a kind of a cultural thing, cultural thing. But what he's saying is, God will save you. And he ain't using his left hand. He's not using his off hand. God's using what? He's using his main hand, his right hand, his mighty hand, his strong hand. He's not bringing second best. He's bringing his best because why? Because you're, you're his people. God the Father says you're his kid. You're his child, his beloved son or daughter. David believes that God will answer him. Do you know why David believes this? Now I know. How can he know? Because, well, you get your conception of God from somewhere. You've heard something. You've seen something. You've been taught something. What you believe about, about God really does matter because that leads, like your theology leads to the way you really do live. I can tell you at least three things. Here, here's, here's, what I, here's what I can know that David would know that would lead him to go, yeah, I can count on God. I can count on God. Because David knows God's track record throughout the Bible. David has opened the scriptures as they were in his time. And he has the testimony, the real life historical narrative, the real recorded history of God time and time and time again being faithful and gracious and merciful and trustworthy and reliable toward his people, especially when his people were scumbags. And he still loves them, and he comes for them. Abraham is promised the child of promise, and he gets the child of promise, Isaac. He asks the Lord to spare at least someone in Sodom, and God does. God gives Abraham victory after victory after victory in battle. Moses gets to participate and be used in, in God's plan to liberate his people from Egypt. God conquers Egypt, the mightiest nation of, on the earth at that time, on behalf of the weakest people, the Israelites. He has the testimony. Moses has the testimony, and David gets to read about it because it's real, of God's testimony of rescue and provision and protection in a wilderness for 40 years. And then the land that was promised to them, they enter it. Why? Because God's faithful does what he says he's going to do. This is his track record. And we can go through the Old Testament. Elijah and Elisha, Daniel, Ruth, David, Joshua, Gideon. In the New Testament, Peter and James and John and Paul and these New Testament Christians who are weak 
They have nothing. They're marginalized. They're poor. They're being persecuted. They're being mocked. They're being excluded. They're under the threat of death, and many of them, many of them die as martyrs. They're, the end of their lives do not look like victory. And, and the track record is that the Lord is mighty and he's his right hand to save them, to love them, to make their lives mean something. You're like, that's cool and all, but like you just said, those, a lot of these guys, like they died, like really violent, sad, and terrible deaths. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll come back to that a little bit. Just creating a little tension. David knows God's track record throughout history. We can see God's track record throughout history. God reveals himself most specifically and specially in this Bible. This is called special revelation. We need to know some things about God that we wouldn't know unless God said it specifically to us. That's why this book is such a miracle. But throughout history, we see God's general revelation of his character, of his nature, of his rhythm, of his pattern, of his habits. What's the greatest and longest lasting empire, nation, or kingdom in our world? Any of you know the name of, the, of this kingdom, of this empire? Rome, the Roman Empire. Over a thousand years, Rome essentially ruled and held influence. Political, military, social, economic influence over the known world. And Rome spent more than 300 years persecuting the church. And before that, hundreds of years persecuting the Jews, God's people. And Rome was really good at persecution. They were really good at socially and governmentally and culturally persecuting the Christians. And they were really good at arresting them and beating them and intimidating them and taking their stuff, imprisoning them, torturing them, and killing them. And and they loved to do it in a big stadium in the center of Rome so that all the Romans could see that this is what we do to these, these weirdo, pagan, despicable Christians. And they did that for 300 years. They were good at it, and they did their best. And now I want you to know that for 15 euros, about, you can go and take a walking th- tour through the Colosseum. And it's in shambles. Like there's archaeologists and engineers working their rear ends off, spending millions and millions of dollars every year just to keep the thing together. The symbol of the might of Rome. And the church stands. We see God's track record. Where's your God? I don't know, where's mighty Rome? Where's your God? I don't know. Someday they're going to say, we're going to get to, I don't know, we're Satan. We're, we're, who is the one who gets to persecute God's people? Who, who gets to actually accuse us? Who's bringing any legitimate charge against us? Because hmm. God is faithful. We see his track record, not only in his word, but in history. And David has God's track record through his life. He can see God's hand and faithfulness in his own life as he's obeyed and trusted God whether it was having to kill a lion or a bear with his bare hands, whether it was having to face Goliath with a couple rocks and a sling, whether it was being rescued from King Saul's pursuit, and this king had an army behind him, and he wanted to murder David, and God said, no, I'm gonna, I'll deliver you. I don't know, it's pretty bad. He's on my tail. Yeah, I'll deliver him. I'll, I'll deliver you. I want to ask, like, 
I know you, you can have the testimony of God's track record in the Bible. I know you can see that. Whether you see it or not, I know you can. I know that you could study and look at and find God's track record throughout history. Can you see God's track record in your life? Are you able, are you able to recount, are you able to recall what God has done? What you've prayed for and pled for and needed the Lord to do or come through with? Are you able, can you think of those things? Because if you can't, either you're probably struggling with some ungratefulness. It's time to see that handled and repented of and, and changed. Or, or perhaps it may be because you don't, you don't pray. You don't pray much. If you don't pray, or you don't pray much, that'll point directly to the nature and the quality that you can be confident in when it comes to, do I trust in God? Am I trusting in him? How ready are you to give a testimony of the times in which the Lord has clearly heard you and he's manifestly, demonstrably shown the work of his mighty hand on your behalf? Because I know, listen, I know, just go ahead and get yourself in trouble. I encourage you, I invite you, feel free to steal my mom's afternoon after service and go just talk, talk to Dr. Bobby and go, can you give the testimony of God's track record in your life? She's gonna talk to you about her life growing up and her parents and becoming a Christian and how she got to be put through college and meeting my dad and then my dad's life being saved as he's on his deathbed and when they're young and I'm a baby, right? Over and over, just go ahead and steal her afternoon and let her bless you by giving you tests. And you know why she can tell you that? Because she's been praying and she writes it down because it's important to her and she, wants, she loves the opportunity to make it public because God's very important to her. And it makes her happy when like, people see how great he is. I'm not kidding. Go, it's just after service, steal her. Steal her afternoon. I don't know what your plans were, Mom, but go ahead and change them. <laughs> to get into the last two or three verses, I want to tell you that it's trusting, trusting in the Lord's name that you end up upright. I know in your battle, I know in your struggle, in your circumstance, if it's only just recently jumped on you or if you've been in it for a while and it seems impossible for you to be able to see like where the finish line is. And I know, I know it feels like you're, yeah, you're on your knees praying, but you've also been brought low. You've been brought on your knees just from the pain, from the weariness. I know, like I said at the beginning, I know some of us often are feeling like we're just teetering on the cliff's edge, just wondering, I don't even know what giving up looks like, but I just feel like doing whatever that is. It's trusting in the Lord's name that you end up upright, still standing, still together, still alive, and not just physically. I mean, like, really, alive. Verse 7 through 8. Some people, they trust in chariots, and some, some people trust in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and they fall, but we rise, we stand upright. They have a lot of chariots, got a lot of horses, got a lot of money. They have a lot of influence. They have a lot of power. They hold all, they hold all the good cards. They've got all the opportunity. I'm at such a disadvantage. In the ancient world, and even 
until the invention of gunpowder and like, like, I don't know, like tanks and stuff. Um, any army that had horses and chariots was like a was like a nuclear superpower. If you had chariots and horses in David's time, and if you had better ones and more of them, I mean, it's done. Like an army with five, 200, 300, 400, 500 chariots and horses facing foot soldiers of three or 4,000, that's just done. The guys with the chariots and the horses are going to win. They put their shields up and they charge forward. They got their horses and armor and they just charge and they run over and kill all the other guys with their horses and chariots. I mean, it's just, it's not even a fight. But even though David had more chariots and horses and better ones than anyone else alive, he was still trusting God over and above all the military things he had at his disposal. Those who trust in him and align themselves with Jesus, they're the ones who share in the victory of Jesus. They're the ones who share in the victory of Jesus. He says, I, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. What does that even mean? What does it mean to trust in the name of the Lord? We've got we to tease that out and understand that because it's in the Bible, but it can quickly turn into a religious phrase that we just don't really, we just assume some meanings, but we really don't really know how to live it and apply it because it's just kind of this religious thing we say. And Lord, let, not, let that not be the way we treat this. What does that mean? There, I think there are a lot of Christians, especially in our modern day, that have made the name of Jesus sort of a, sort of a tagline. There are, there are some who, when they pray and worship and they're needing and calling upon God, they treat in the name of Jesus. They treat the name of Jesus or this phrase in the name of Jesus, they treat it like literally, like a magical spell that if they say it enough and urgently and fervently enough, then with their magical spell, they will summon God to do their bidding. It's witchcraft. And then there's some of us in a more kind of just mundane, just like eh, banal way. Some of us will think, oh, to pray in and trust in Jesus' name means I got to close my prayers out with in Jesus' name. Amen. Like it's the formal thing that you're supposed to say. And if you don't say at the end of your prayer, well, the Lord will probably take a couple points off your grade when you pray. He might give you the car, but it's going to be an Impala. And not, a, not like a cool one, if that exists. But that's not what praying in the name of Jesus is. That's, what, that's not what trusting in the name of Jesus is. Where do we get this in the name? Trusting in the name when praying in the name of Jesus, where do we get that? You can look with me in John chapter 14. On his last night with his disciples, Jesus tells them, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, they'll also do the works that I do. Why? Because you belong to me. I'm your master. I'm your friend. I'm your king. If you belong to me, you really like my ideas. You really like my purposes better than yours, better than anyone else's. And you're going to go, yeah, I like the way you're going, Jesus. I, I see that's the best too. I want to participate. Will you let me participate and follow you in this? That's why Christians will, if they're Christians, do the works of Jesus because they belong to him. And they like his purposes. They like his ways. In fact, he says, greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask, and, and I'm not even unpacking that phrase. That's a whole sermon. Yeah, I'm just going to leave that with you. But whew, that's a really spectacular statement he made. Verse 13, he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. 
In Jesus' name, let me win the lottery. In Jesus' name, let her say, yes, she'll go on a date with me. In Jesus' name, I want you to bless me with provision of money. In Jesus' name, grant me favor with my boss or with my followers on Facebook or social media. I didn't say a single bad thing necessarily, except, except believing that because I say it in Jesus' name, now he's got to do it. That's sinful. To pray in Jesus' name, what he's saying here, means to pray as if Jesus himself was praying our prayers. So it means to test and look at what my heart's desire or need is and go, is this what he wants me to want? Because I don't want to want something he doesn't want me to want. And if it's not what he wants me to want, then I'm not going to ask for it. And I can be more assured and more confident that what I'm asking for that I want, if it's aligned with what he wants, well, yeah. That's the direction he's going in too. Well, actually, that's the direction I'm going in too. He's already headed that direction. Our staff meets uh, all together as a team once every three months. We had our staff meeting yesterday. We've been praying and working and strategizing over some really big things. And that was one of the things briefly discussed yesterday was this idea of, hey, we don't need to come up with plans and thoughts and dreams and visions and then ask God to bless it. We need to ask the Lord what he's blessing and intends to do and ask him if he'll put us on that track. That's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus, to trust in his name. See, when an, amb when an ambassador visits another country, he does so in the name of the king or the president. And it's as though the king or the president is speaking the words to the foreign king that the ambassador is saying. The ambassador is not allowed to say anything on his own behalf. He speaks on behalf of the kingdom. He speaks on behalf of the king. So the name of Jesus isn't some tagline. It's not magic words. It's not a closing statement in your prayers, but it's something far, far, far deeper. It's an invitation to speak to God with the privilege of his son, with the honor and the acceptance of his son, Jesus. And you're accepted in, and God honors your prayer because you approach him with the very heart that his son gave you, with the new desires, the new passions, the new appetites, the new faith that his son gave you. And you show up in your father's presence with that. In fact, we could, we could maybe paraphrase what Jesus is saying in John chapter 14. We could kind of paraphrase it like in the spirit of John 14 like this, kind of in normal people talk. But when you pray, spend time thinking about what I value. All right, guys? When you pray, I want you to spend time. Take the time to think about what I value, what I honor, what I love. Look at my track record and see where I've been and where I'm going. Look at what I've already promised. Think about what I value and what I'm doing, what I've instructed you. Think about how I live my life, the kind of example that I provide. Think about the kind of people I hang out with and why I hang out with them and what I'm trying to do with them or for them. I want you to think about the goals that I'm seeking to achieve and the relationship that I have with God. I want you to think about that while you're praying. I want you to take careful notice of what I've taught you. I want you to look and listen. Think about what I prayed for. But trying to model that for you guys. I'm, I'm the son of God, so did you hear how I was praying? What kind of things I was asking the Father for? And when you do, I want you to make these requests boldly. I want you to pray boldly with expectation, with confidence, with assurance. 
I want you to know that the words you speak are the same words I'm speaking with the same heart and purposes that I have. Why? Because I gave you a new personhood. I made you a new person. I gave you a new heart. If you're speaking out of that, you're aligned with me. So you have confidence. You can pray and you don't have to worry about if you're irritating your father in heaven or bugging him or annoying him or messing up your prayer. When you pray this way, I want you to know that your prayers are going to be answered. Your prayers are going to be answered. And, th- and that phrase itself is just so tricky. God answering my prayers. Does God answer your prayers? Yes. He always answers your prayers. There's not a single prayer that you have ever prayed that God has not answered. You're like, I don't know. I've been praying for something for a long time over and over again, and I'm doing so with tears and weakness. Yeah, I know. God's been answering you. And because he's answered, you keep praying. Because his answers are just, they come in three forms. God always answers. He'll either tell you yes, or he'll tell you no, or he'll tell you not right now. And he'll always answer. Will you hear it? Will you accept what he's saying? Will you trust him as he answers? There's some prayers, even in the Bible, of godly people, people who pray fervently and earnestly for something, and God God says, nah. Go read the book of Habakkuk. The, the, The people of Israel are facing major threat and 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 danger from surrounding wicked pagan nations who want to destroy them. And it looks like they're really going to come, come in and really wreck us. Like, this might be the end of us as a nation. And so we praise and go, God, are you, where are you? Are you, going to, are you listening? Are you watching? What are you going to do? Are you going to just stand by and let this happen? You've got to save us. And God goes, yeah, I'm, I'm watching and, and I am doing something. In fact, I'm going to do something that you wouldn't understand even if I told you explicitly what I'm doing. But no, I'm not going to stop those guys because you're my people and you're, you're being sinful and wicked and disobedient and you're not loving me and you're worshiping all their gods. No, I don't like those guys. And yes, I will punish all those bad guys. But before I do so, I'm going to bring them in and I'm going to let them have their way to some extent to discipline you and bring pain because I love you. So no, no Habakkuk, I'm not going to do what you ask, at least not right now. I'll do it later. And it's good. And I'm doing this because I love you and I love my people. And I'm, I'm not going to do injustice to anyone. I'll do right. So I'll, I'll close with this concept here. Verse 9. Oh Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. I want you to know, I'd really like you to buy this one and store it and keep it for yourself. That it would be better to lose a battle with God rather than win a battle without him. You're in far better off shape with calamity happening to you and what you wanted or what you thought or believe you needed. God says no, and you lose in that circumstance in this life. It'd be better for that to happen and you have him than to get what you wanted or needed and more but you don't have God 
God's people don't trust in chariots and horses. We can't. Might we need some chariots and horses? Probably. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is teaching about what your need is. He says, I know you need, your Father in heaven knows you need food and clothing. He knows you need that stuff. And look how he treats the birds. Look how he treats the grass. That's just birds and grass. And he takes care of all that stuff. Aren't you more important to your Father in heaven than them? Yeah. Listen, even the non-believers, even the Gentiles need that stuff. And they go running after that stuff only. But you have a Father in heaven who knows you need that stuff and he'll supply. He'll give you what you need when you need it. Knowing you can trust him, knowing who you have, seek him first. All the stuff you need and want. And when you need it, will be given to you. Bigger guns, more money, better equipment, having facilities or gear or technology, being in a stronger or more influential group or demographic with superior access to opportunities for success or achievement. Even, even better health. Even a fixed body. Those things, sure, they can win battles. They can win battles. But none of them win the war that you've been born into. Because everything that you can gain in your hand, can be put in your hands in this life. All that goes away and it's burnt up when you exit this life. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? Still loses soul. Do you know what the battle's for? Do you know what the war's over? Do you know what's at stake? Your soul. You could be a starving poor person who somehow either is given or you earn and achieve money and all the food you could ever want. But if you don't have God, you enter, you're going to enter hell with a full belly. You could be a ravaged paraplegic and someone could come up with the medical, technological advancements that reconnect your brain and spine to your legs, and now you can walk. But if you do not have God, your soul enters hell dancing. What about the victory over your soul for your soul? The victory we need is that our souls wouldn't be lost, that God wouldn't lose us, that he would accept us, and he would keep us. No matter what, that nothing could separate us from the love of God, even ourselves at our worst. Is that we not finish this life apart from God and alienated from Him, but that we live this life and no matter what, in this life, with our soul saved forever because we belong to Him and we have Him. To trust in the name of the Lord, for your example. And I've been referencing this. I practice my sermons in bits and pieces with myself, with my family, with some of you throughout the week. I'm just working on it and, and, and talking it out, practicing it. So maybe you've heard me talk a bit about in the book of Daniel, it's a, this Old Testament. It's, it's full of stories and, and, and examples, real, real things that happened uh, of some Israelites who lived in Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. And there are three guys, three, three Hebrews, three Israelites, who believed in and trusted God, and they were worshiping God, Yahweh. And so the king, Nebuchadnezzar, is really offended by that because they're, they're not worshiping him and his God. So he says, listen, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, come here. All right, hey, 
uh, it's okay that you worship your God, but uh, you're not worshiping my God. You're not worshiping me. I'm really offended by that, and I'm the king. I could kill you. So why don't you go ahead and add my God to your deal? Otherwise, I got this big old furnace, and I'm going to put you in it, and you'll die. And these guys said, um, no, we, we can't afford to worship your God. We can't add any other gods to our God. We got the one. So go ahead and put us in the furnace. Are you kidding? Are you idiots? Are you fools? Essentially, they're like, I mean, in your eyes, probably. But not God's eyes, not in our, our God's eyes. See, we, we believe our God loves us. We believe he's going to save us. We don't know how. We don't know what he's going to do. We don't know how he'll do it. Throw us in the fire. We don't know how it'll work, but he's going to rescue us. And the minute Nebuchadnezzar is like, okay, one of them goes, oh, no, okay, listen, hey, even if he doesn't save us from the fire, he's still good. He's our God. He's better than your God. We'd rather die in the fire with our God than add your God to our life and keep our... We, it, we're killing ourselves forever if we save our life now and take your God. We'd rather save our souls forever and win the final war and victory with our God. So even if he doesn't save us from the fire right now, we're saved from the fire. He's a real God. Yours isn't. We're going to trust in his name. We're going to trust in who he says. Winning any and all of our battles comes from who we have and not simply what we have. And I know there are some things that we need, some things that we want. And in some ways, yeah, we can, in earthly, temporal, we can really count on them. But none of those things, none of those things are victory. It's who we have. Here's how I want you to think about this. Um, what would happen if God gave you the thing that you really want right now? the thing that you've been really needing and you've been praying? What would happen if you got exactly what you needed and you've been pleading for after so long? But you came to find out that you didn't have God. Would that matter? Would that matter to you? Who's your trust in? Do you know how, do you know, how you know who your trust is in? Look at your life. When you get a big win something that you needed and it's been supplied, what happens to your prayer life after you get it? What happens to your relationship with God after you get what you need? That'll tell you very quickly and fairly precisely who or what your trust is in. So with that said, I'll end the sermon with a very timely and sovereign God-appointed and anointed announcement, an update for us, because it's God's work that we've been praying for and pleading for for the better part of a year. Uh, at the, by the end of this year, by the end of December, our church has to be out of our space. The landlord has to raise our rent. He's kept us at half rent for three years. Our, our landlord owns this building. He's a Christian. This is his personal retirement investment. And he's been losing and sacrificing money for him and his wife for three years because he wanted us to be able to have a church home. Okay? But now he says, hey, listen, I, I also, I've been loving the church. Now I've got to love my wife. So I've got I to put the rent up at kind of close to what you ought to be paying. It's fair. 
and it's doubled. And we, we don't have the funds for that. Uh, and, and even if we did, it probably wouldn't be all that wise to like stay here and keep paying all that money. That probably wouldn't be a wise stewarding thing, only to find ourselves three years from now kind of in the same position. So we've been spending this entire year praying and searching and looking for a, a, a temporary, about a year and a half to two year church worship space, a home for us to be in together on Sunday mornings, during which time we're going to pray, we're going to trust the Lord, we're going to decide disciple one another. We're, we're going to ask the Lord to establish and cultivate a real gospel culture and see real transformation and change and redemption and reconciliation in our lives as God's people, as we worship out there somewhere, that God would grow the number of his family, that more people would meet him, that more people would know and love him, be redeemed and enjoy him, that we would, during that time, by God's grace, save money and raise money toward being able to afford a longer-term longer term church home of our own. Uh, this has been a real struggle all year long, uh, knocking on doors, asking, submitting proposals, going so far and getting so close, and then having that door shut by those who are asking. Um, been a lot of turmoil, anxiety, difficulty, a lot of disappointment, frustration on my part and some of our leaders. Um, after so long, yesterday we received the word from New Creation Christian Academy that they've accepted our proposal to worship on their campus. That's good news. Uh, yes, I'm so, that's a great golf class. Yeah. Uh, I had a choice yesterday when I got that was either rip my shirt off and run to Stuart or Christian's house and ring their doorbell or cry. I, I just cr chose cry because uh, I was relieved. We've been trusting the Lord, and there's some really good opportunities, and they look like slam dunks for us. They look like the best plan. And the Lord kept on saying, no, no. And even with this, even with this Christian school that we've been working with, it's been about two months in the, in, the, in the working, two, two and a half months, in the narrowing window of our church being here and trying to figure out what we're going to do next, that, that window just keeps on getting smaller and smaller. And there's a lot of work to do. And we've been waiting on them. And all the power and the decision-making seems like it's in their hands. We're praying and trusting in the Lord, trusting and believing, preaching to myself, preaching and teaching and leading our leaders and our church to just go, listen, no one loves our church more than Jesus does. And no one's better at loving our church than Jesus is. So we're going to trust him. We need a building. He'll give us one. And if he doesn't, it'd be better to be a church without a building than to be a church with a building. We don't have him. We don't really believe in him. Our trust is in a horse or a chariot like a building. The Lord, it looks like, clearly is moving. I want you to know that we don't have a contract in our hands yet. They're formulating it. There are some terms in it that we need to see. All right, nothing's been signed. I don't want to dampen any celebration or fire in our hearts. Fire in our hearts, let's go. So that you now know, I'm telling you this, well, uh, we have an approval, but uh, it's not done. Well, then what do we do? I'm trying to help you and lead you and serve you. We pray for the Lord to give to us continued favor with the board of directors of this school to bless our church with a church home for some period of time so that we can be a church that's a blessing to those who are blessing us. And so we're going to pray for the Lord to give us a favorable contract. 
Not simply a contract that like we're in a good position to possibly have to we could maybe negotiate some things we don't like. We're, we're praying. I'm praying. And I want, I want you to join me in prayer to pray that the Lord would give us a contract that's like absurdly more favorable to us than we could even ask for. Right? That's what we'll pray for. Because that wouldn't be selfish and that wouldn't be spoiled of us. Forgot to go, yeah, and we go, more. Because when our God gives us something and he works his wonder and shows his love, that's righteous dissatisfaction to go, I love what you did. Will you do more? He goes, I love to do more. That's what he says. That's what he likes to do. So we'll pray that way. Why don't you pray with me? Let's pray together. Don't treat my prayer right now uh, like a, a, a prayer performance and you just sit and listen to me. I'm asking that you would pray yourself to God as I pray. Don't be an audience. Be a participant. Let's pray and trust in the name of the Lord our God. And then we'll take communion, celebrating that he is our God. What a God he is. Father in heaven, we do, oh, we do thank you so much for the ten and a half year track record of your faithfulness, of your provision, of your love and your mercy upon us as a church. Lord, we're so thankful right now for what you are doing and what you're showing. And we're expectant and excited about what, what you what you will do, and that you've included us, and you're providing for us to be with you in it. We ask, Lord, that you would continue granting us favor with who we ought to have favor with, and that we would take full advantage of the opportunities we have to bless those who are blessing your church. We ask for a favorable and good contract that we'd be bewildered by the love and blessing of, of, of these, this Christian school in a way that would just urge and propel us into blessing them in the love of Christ back so that we can bless the lost and the unchurched and one another. We thank you for your son, our king, who prays for us now. We know that you hear us. We know that you love these prayers. We're thankful that you've shown us what we ought to want because it's what you want. Lord, bless what you are blessing and let us participate as we trust in your name and you win victories so we can brag about you and set up our banners to the name of Jesus. Amen. Love you guys. Amen. All right, so now is our time to respond to everything that we've heard this morning, and uh, we respond in three different ways uh, here at Restoration City Church. We're going to respond in communion, uh, we respond in tithe and offering, and we respond in worship. So, as, uh, as the band comes up in a moment, we're going to be singing 